Hello, my name is Paul Rouse and you are listening to Sport and Ireland, A History. In the spring and early summer of 2020, the playing of organised sporting competitions in Ireland and across most of the world was effectively suspended due to COVID. During those months, that is to say between March and June 2020, I recorded the weekly lectures of my long-running module, Sport and Ireland, A History, which I had taught in UCD for many years. The recordings were undertaken as a series of interviews with Joe Malloy, the award-winning presenter of Off the Ball on News Talk FM in Ireland, and were broadcast live on radio. The recordings are available here now, courtesy of Off the Ball, and I would like to thank Joe Malloy and Ger Gilroy for facilitating this series and for making it available on History Hub. History Hub is the UCD School of History's public history website. The site has hundreds of podcasts and posts covering everything from medieval to modern history, Irish and international. The site can be found at historyhub.ie. This episode of Sport in Ireland A History is episode three, in which we discuss cockfighting, bull baiting and the death of traditional sports in Ireland. So delighted to say it is week three of our series with Paul Rouse. He's the professor of history at UCD School of History. Paul, week three, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, very well, Joe. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me again. So uh, where we left things off in the chat last week was we had reached 1800. Just for anybody who is joining us late, maybe sum up where sport in Ireland and the UK, but primarily Ireland was around the turn of the 19th century. Sport in, in 1800 was an amalgam of the old and the new. There were the old traditional sports which you would have seen played in Ireland across the centuries, uh, extending back into the medieval period. So I'm talking about sports such as forms of football played around the place, forms of hurling played across Ireland, but also a huge number of animal sports from cockfighting, the most important um, vibrant sport in, in, in the country, across to bull baiting, bear baiting, throwing at cocks, various animal sports like that. And also traditional sports such as the racing of horses. But those traditional sports had been joined by 1800, in 1800 by a new way of playing sports, which involves people setting up clubs and people having a governing body. Now, the, it was happened in a very, very small way in, and for example, horse racing is the great idea. So it, it was still being raced. Horses races were still taking place in the traditional way around the country. But there was also now the turf club had been established in County Kildare with a formalized set of rules and it was beginning to spread its tentacles around the country. There was there were also uh, clubs for involved in yachting and in racquetball and other sports like that. But again, a very, very small number of those in the modern way of playing sport. And all around it, though, is the commercialization of sport beginning to take place in much greater numbers. And the story of the 19th century is the story of the absolute transformation from 1800 onwards to the point that by the time you get to 1900, 100 years later, the modern sporting world, as we know it, is essentially in place. So this is the key century, really. This is, it. This is when it all happens. Yeah. We touched uh, 1750 to 1800 last week, and there were amazing statistics there, not least that 25,000 new clubs sprung up around the world, and many of them sports clubs. And even on the island of Ireland, the population jumped about 2 million, give or take. 
So it was an incredible time of change. The plan today, and we're not necessarily going to do this in chronological order over the next no. weeks, we'll switch things up and there'll be different themes on certain weeks. But because so much change happened in this period, the plan today is to take people from 1800 to 1850. That's the real And probably period. a little bit later than that. We'll go, we'll go a little bit later than that. And, Perfect. And so the, the, the kind of driving changes for all this, I mean, it, this was uh, sport being reflected in society. So you've got industrialization, you've got urbanization, you've got population growth. Talk to us about all of these things and how they fed into sport. Well, a really interesting way of looking at it is, is understanding the manner in which the world changes at any given moment. So we're at the beginning of a revolution here we're in the early stages of a revolution in our own world and that revolution is around digital technologies and the internet and it is a revolution which will play out over the coming decades and it is it is essentially already reordering how we live and how we organize our society and that will continue over the decades so you have to say that what was happening at by 1800 was we were in the middle of the industrial revolution and there is a mistake made about the industrial revolution in that people kind of, it's almost like without thinking about it, you imagine that, oh, there was a revolution. The idea of revolution kind of implies that something changes really quickly and really radically. It was much slower than that. But to understand it, you have to look to England and to understand the birth of the modern way of playing sport, you have to look to England and what was happening there and that industrial revolution, which happened in two basic phases. The first phase is 1760 to 1840, where you get the rise of new ways of organizing society, the introduction of a factory system, the use of newer materials such as iron and steel, the use of new machines, the steam engine being the great example, and a revolution in transport and communications, which basically saw the spread of the newspapers and the rise of railways, to give you just two ideas. And all around this, these basic things helped facilitate facilitate in England the creation of a new urban society. Mm -hmm. So the population of Britain grew from 10 million in 1800 to 40 million by 1900. And in 1800, one in five English people lived in cities. By 1900, it was four in five. So you get the creation of an urban society. And look at what happened to London. The population, uh, London was the only city or town in England which had more than than 100,000 people in, in 1800. By 1900, there were 40 towns and cities in England with more than 100,000 people in them. And London grew from 1 million people to 6.7 million people, the largest city in the world by an incredible way. So in this new urban society, which was industrializing, you had a whole new range of different things happening, which allowed for the creation of, of the modern sporting world. So that's the first thing. The second thing that happened was you get changes in the way that people thought about about a whole range of different things. So, for example, about what was appropriate and, and inappropriate uh, as a way to do things. And this is the product after the Enlightenment of how people believe you should be. So, for example, you get the view that public urination or urinating in the streets is no longer something that um, is to be uh, considered appropriate. Equally, people should use cutlery when, when, when they eat. And these ideas were spread because of growth in literacy through more people going to school, number one. And number two, by the increase decade after decade through the 19th century of people reading newspapers. So the spread of both local and national newspapers, it is the internet of its age. It's a cliche to say that, but it is the internet of its age. It's this growth in newspapers. 
I hate to break it to you, but public urination is alive and well, Paul. You need to get out more. Well, <laughs> the news has yet to reach certain parts. It is true, but uh, but it is it is it is it is a matter that that by this point, it is considered wrong to to do these things, and this mattered for sport. How so? Well, the great and obvious example is what was considered to be appropriate for sport. So arguably the most popular sport outside of horse racing in the country, horse racing and hunting in 1800 was cockfighting. That is the idea that two cocks would be set to fight against each other and people would gamble on which would win and people would, or they would fight for stakes. And it, it obviously the, the, the cockfight was organized in such a way that the birds were fitted with spurs and it was literally a fight to, to, to the death. You lose a cockfight, there's a really, really good chance you're not, you're not fighting another one. Um, and it was the most popular of a world of blood sports uh, and of, of animal-based sports that included sports such as bull baiting, bear baiting, and throwing at cocks, all of which were really popular in Ireland in 1800, although they had been under pressure for the previous 20, 30 years with people saying that this is wrong, particularly throwing at cocks, this idea that you put a, put a, uh, you can just throw stones at a bird and, and it would have, you, you kill it, you keep it. Uh, and you eat it. But there was a view there that that wasn't sporting because the bird ultimately would die no matter what happened. And equally, bull baiting. Bull baiting was a central experience in many Irish towns. If you look at, for example, the town of Wexford, and people will be familiar with the bull ring in the middle of Wexford. That is exactly what it, what it says of them. And what happened was a bull was chained to a ring, a steel ring in the middle of the town, about 10 to 12 uh, feet long and dogs were set on it and there was gambling on which dog would survive the longest while chewing the bear or chewing the bull and uh, ultimately the bull would die and the meat would be considered tenderized by virtue of the onslaught of the dogs uh, and and cut up and eaten so this was a sport which was increasingly under pressure by 1800. There were actually two bills introduced in the House of Commons in 1800 and 1802 trying to suppress it, although they failed. And campaigners are now beginning to argue that this was inhuman. Hmm. So some of the things you mentioned there, the UK mainland going from 10 million to 40 million, one in five people from uh, cities to four in five people in cities, uh, London going from a million people to six million, all in the space of 100 years. It is absolutely extraordinary. Did Ireland parallel those changes to the same extent? It did for a while. So the population uh, of Ireland in 1800 was about 5 million. By the 1840s, it had grown to more than 8.2 million, 8.3 million. The famine, of course. Yeah. And then the famine came. And before we, we'll talk about the famine in a second, but what also happened was a slower urbanization of Ireland. So Belfast began to grow. So Belfast was a small town 15, 10, 15, 20,000 people in 1800. By 1900, there were 350,000 people who were living in Belfast and they were people who were drawn to the city by the linen industry and by the shipbuilding, the steelworks and all those spin-off industries that were there. Dublin also grew, but it grew at a much more sedate place and Dublin wasn't driven by by industrialization. It was still mainly a services town uh, in very large measure. But by, by that point, the population of Ireland uh, by the start of the famine is, was 15% urbanized. So it's much, much more, it took place much more slowly and it was much more regionalized 
in, in, in Ulster, which also mattered later, and we'll be talking about this in the coming weeks, for why soccer spread into Belfast uh, rather than into Dublin initially and why its spread was much more uneven across, across the, the, the countryside. But the great defining moment in modern Irish history in terms of population and in terms of demographics was the famine, yeah. um, which, as your listeners will, will know, arrived in the middle of the 1840s with potato blight. And if we take a rounded off figures, which is an appalling thing to do when you talk about lives, individual lives, but the reality of the famine was a million dead and a million emigrated within five years. And then decade after decade of, of, um, of emigration basically destroyed the population of Ireland. And if you look at it now, the, the population of the Republic of Ireland is still under 5 million. And Ireland is the country in the Western world which has a slower, a lower population now than it did have in the middle of the 19th century. So it changed how sport worked in, in the countryside and it changed the spread of sport. But there was something else that really mattered. And it was the fact that after the 1798 rebellion and the introduction of the Act of Union, laws which were passed in London now applied to Ireland uh, 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 around the place. And this really mattered when animal rights campaigners began to introduce legislation into the House of Commons which, was, Commons, which was passed, and it changed the Irish sporting world. Okay, very interesting. If you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to Paul Rice, professor at UCD's School of History. We're in week three of our series uh, charting uh, the history of sport in Ireland and the UK. So you, the plan today is to get from 1800 through to beyond the 1850s. That, the Acts of Union, 1801, so now Parliament are ruling over the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. So you're saying that the change from a sporting perspective there is any animal rights laws passed then came into effect and the, in Ireland. And, and it really began to matter and matter immediately because of a group of campaigners who started in the, particularly from the 1820s, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, later the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, organised, campaigned year after year from the 1820s, from its foundation in 1824. And by 1835, it had succeeded in having passed in the House of Commons um, the Cruelty to Animals Act 1835, which outlawed bull baiting and listed cockfighting as a misdemeanor. Now that was toughened up in 1849 when cockfighting was actually criminalised. Mm. Uh, this was a remarkable sea change. This is a sport that was patronised by all levels of society. It was not just a sport of the poor, it was a sport also that was frequented by the rich and now within 30 years of 20 years of campaigning it, it was outlawed. Now, it doesn't mean it disappeared. It didn't disappear. For example, there were public, um, through the 1850s, there were still large cockfighting theatres running in Liverpool and Manchester. And as late as 1874, the last big public cock, uh, cockfighting pit was, cockpit was, um, was still operational in Newcastle to give, to give uh, a prime example. And as we know, on the margins of English life and of Irish life, mm. cockfighting continues uh, to take place. So just because you decide that something is outlawed doesn't mean that it just disappears. And even in Ireland, people were slow to let go in Kilkenny. They were still bull baiting in Kilkenny in 1837. So these things, these things took time to, to, to wind their way out from, from their central position within Irish life. I suspect I know the answer to this, but why didn't sports like hunting come under the uh, Cruelty to Animals Act? Oh, it's, it's absolutely to do with class and that relationship between wealth and power 
as it always has been the case. It's it's it is a remarkable fact, a remarkable reveal of the hypocrisy of of people that. Let's take, for example, Richard Martin, Humanity Dick, as uh, was his nickname, because he was the one who introduced the bill in 1835 to the House of Commons, which led to the outlawing of Humphrey. He had he lived at Ballinahitch Castle down in Connemara, and he had 2,000 acres there where he was a leading huntsman in, in the area. His um, fellow worker on, on, this, on these things was a man called Fowl Burton, F-O-W-E-L-L, Burton. Um, and Burton, again, railed year after year about this notion of blood sports. Fowl Burton once, uh, in the 1820s, shot 500 birds uh, for a bet, as in grouse, pheasant, and partridge. Um, and it comes down to 1825, and a question asked by Robert Peel in the House of Commons, where he asked, why were the sports of the poor to be put down and those of the rich to be left unmolested? And it, it is the capacity of people. And it was spun, of course, by people who were involved in hunting and shooting and fishing. Hunting in particular, they said, we need to hunt because it maintains the equine stock and it gets rid of vermin. And of course, that is another veneer on the fact that they wished to keep their sports. They wanted to order society as they wished, but they at the same time wanted to control the poor to control people who they considered to be um, uh, incapable of organizing their own lives and who needed to be directed. Okay. So in the midst of all this, what about other sports? What about football in England? Is that blossoming? What about hurling here in Ireland? We discussed that last week. What happens to those kind of sports in the midst of all this through the first half of the 19th century? By the 1840s, football in, in England uh, and in Ireland was under huge pressure in England. The Highways Act had stopped, attempted to stop people playing in the street and it had undercut these great folk games uh, that were being played all across uh, all across England. And we'll talk a little bit more about football next week, so I don't want to go too much into that, the origins of soccer and rugby and how they grew out of folk football. It's enough to know at this point that they were under enormous pressure by the 1840s. And the great illustration of change, though, in Ireland was hurling and the manner in which hurling was changing um, between 1800 and, and, and the famine, but as well after the famine. And the truth of it is that, that hurling went from being a game that was prospering in the 1790s to one which by the 1870s was on the margins of, of, of Irish life. And I suppose the question is, why did this happen? But partly it's to do with the fact that those lords and ladies uh, who had previously given patronage to, to hurling in their big houses and had constructed teams to play matches against each other and gambled on those matches, um, now gave their patronage to hurling, usually. So people, those rich families, drifted out of organising hurling matches into not. Number two, it did survive as the game of peasantry and of ordinary people across Ireland for much of the 1820s, 1830s and into the 1840s. But again, the famine wreaked havoc in those areas where hurling was particularly, particularly strong. But it's a really interesting thing that happens when there's a crisis in a society. It generally, generally what it does is it accelerates trends that are already happening in society. So hurling was beginning to move to the margins and after the famine through the 1850s and 1860s, it really came under enormous pressure. And it did so for a variety of reasons. First of all, the state was becoming more powerful. So there were more police, better organized, and they moved to stop the violence in the game of hurling. And hurling was, there were, there, were, there were many matches played in which there was no violence, but there were a lot of matches. If you read newspapers such as the Tomb Herald and the Nina Gargan, you see 
month after month stories of violent affray in, in hurling matches. And there are great examples of the spleen that can be caught. So 1839, a man called um, Thomas Fennessy was coming back from the fair at Care down in, 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 in Tipperary when he was uh, set upon and murdered. And in the case where it came to court afterwards, it was the result of a hurling match that had been played at Ardfinnan um, 14 or 15 years previously. So the spleen around hurling matches yeah. could endure and, and these things go on. And if you look through the 1850s, it continued. So a boy dies in 1857 in St. Vincent's Hospital in Dublin after a violent assault at a hurling match. There were violent assaults at hurling matches in County Down, and County Tipperary, County Galway, Sligo, and so on all around the countryside in the 1850s. Mm. And there's an attempt to, to suppress that. So that's part of it. And at this stage, what is the nature of competition? If we're talking GAA 1884 looms large, obviously, as the date in everybody's head, is there national competition at this stage? Is it just town against town, almost exhibition matches? Let's get together on a Saturday and have a few drinks afterwards. What, what, what's the nature of competition? Um, it's, it's largely localised. The tradition of play is largely a localised one where you play against a, a nearby village or a nearby town or a nearby group or townland. It's, we think in terms of parishes now, but it was also, there are other networks in rural life. And in Dublin, it's streets of people playing against each other as well, are playing on the street. And, and that mattered. There is, by the way, an extraordinary thing happened in, in, in the 1750s in England, which uh, two uh, historians, Owen Kinsel and John Bergen, um, wrote superbly about and it, it happened in, in the middle of London in the 1750s at this ground called uh, the Artillery Ground, which there was a man called George Smith took this ground in the 1740s and the 1750s and he began to use it as a place to hold cricket matches. And it was really clever. He charged people into the cricket matches. He advertised them in the newspapers. But he also owned the pub at the only entrance mm. to the ground. So he used to sell them the drink, sell them the tickets, advertise the games, take the gate money. And he's this kind of brilliant sporting entrepreneur. And it was him that kind of modernized and urbanized the idea of, of playing cricket. But back in the 1740s and 1750s, Smith also got teams of hurlers to play exhibition matches in, in the middle of London. So he had Munster v Leinster and he charged people in. Now he was obviously trying to spread the sport. He charged them half the entrance fee that he was charging people to, to, uh, to cricket matches. And it didn't endure much longer. So, but that's an example of an organized, um, more general, um, or, or kind of more modernized form of playing hurling. And there are also matches advertised in the Irish papers in the 1760s, 70s, 70s, yeah. 1770s of Tipperary v Kilkenny or Munster v Leinster in various representative matches. Now, these aren't the best teams from these areas. These are groups of people who claim to represent these areas, but it is, it is still modern organized sport. So you've mentioned newspapers several times there, so it would be remiss of us not to talk about that. Do we have any sense of what literacy rates were? Uh, did newspapers cotton on to the fact very early on that people were massively interested in sport and we should have designated sports sections? Talk to us about how newspapers and sport went across this century. Oh, in, in the 1700s, literacy was very, very, very low and it was utter really rooted in an elite of society. The story of the 19th century is the, is the democratization of learning and in particular the democratization of, of literacy. So by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, because of the spread of primary education in particular in, in Ireland through the 1830s and 1840s onwards, although 
really strong compulsory school attendance is much later in, in the in the in, in the nineteenth century. By the time you get to nineteen hundred, you're looking at ninety percent more or less of the population being able to 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 read. But you're also looking at a revolution in media, which saw newspapers now being made available because of changes in taxation. Newspapers were made and changing in technology, which allowed them to be printed cheaply. Newspapers now became affordable in a way that they weren't previously, and they became available in public reading houses and in public libraries through, through that, the spread of both of those institutions in the in the late in the start in the end of the nineteenth century. Now there were dedicated sporting newspapers coming from England in the early 1800s, but it was only from the 1870s there was a newspaper founded called the Irish Sportsman and in the 1880s there was a newspaper founded called Sport. So you get the two of those as the first dedicated Irish sporting newspapers, which came out as, as weeklies. Crucially, because of the arrival of the railways, they were able to spread the newspapers all across Ireland. So these, this became a national, a national press. And this really mattered in terms of... Um, in terms of how, in terms of how it was organised, but I think um, I, I, I think it matters because people began to read about sporting exploits taking place in one place and then another, and began to imitate those exploits or to challenge each other to games as the century went on. And newspapers played a crucial role in 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 the creation of the modern sporting world. Hmm. So what other sports should we touch on then? Because things like swimming pools start happening, things like ball courts start happening. There's a real blossoming in terms of the sports people are playing, more recognisable to us than the bull baiting types. Yeah, this again is about money. It's about the commercialization of sport in an urban setting. This is why urbanization and the growth of the population matters because people can now have a larger hinterland of people. And if I build a swimming pool and if I wish to charge people into that swimming pool, it's much more easy to do that in a large urban area than it is in, in a rural area in an era before, before, the, before the car. Um, and gate money became important. Uh, to all of this. So it happens in a whole range of different ways. Um, so for example, you see ball courts, rackets courts being established in Irish towns and people being charged for the use of those courts. You could hire the court from, from the 1800s, 1810s onwards. It was a natural thing. You hire a court if you want to, to play in it. Swimming, swimming pools and also places like Bray where there are kind of seawater pools set up. And again, there's a kind of a world where sport bleeds into leisure and the idea of a day out by traveling to the seaside um, comes together later in, in, in all of that. And again, people were being charged in. And then I, I suppose another brilliant example is billiard tables. So mm. billiard tables, the modern game of billiards is largely in place, constructed by 1800. It, the idea of hitting a ball with a cue on a table is something that was happening in early modern France, early modern Britain, and so on. But the modern game of billiards was spread by the British Empire and across the British Empire. It was brought in various places by officers and then by people selling them. And by the early 1800s, there were billiard tables in Ennis and in Cume and other small Irish towns all down the West, as well as across um, the rest of the country. And what this was, was a commercialised um, world of level, a world of leisure and sport in all of this. So that's the first way in which other sport is happening. And the second way in which it's happening is a slow and steady spread of clubs. So the oldest sporting club in the country was founded in 1720, the Yacht Club of Cork. And by the famine, there are, there's the Royal George 
Yacht Club, there's the Royal Irish Yacht Club and, and the Royal Western Yacht Club. Now, the Royal Western Yacht Club was founded in, in County Clare and it spread. It had adherents from around there, but it also kept rooms in Grafton Street in Dublin. So this was an elite society. Equally, by then, there were hunting clubs in at least 20 Irish counties, predominantly in Munster. And people used to travel from around the world that pan-European elite used to come to Munster to hunt. So famous uh, were, was the chase in the country and so good was the social life around that chase. So all of this is being spread, but it's spreading within the elite before the famine. This is something that's really, really important. The democratisation through clubs through across the rest of society did not happen until the 1870s and 1880s. Okay, so um, if we're looking at uh, rail travel, that's kind of crucial in a country like Ireland. Horse racing bears that out. You might talk to us about that. You, you cannot imagine a national horse racing scene in the middle of the 19th century in Ireland without having, um, without having railways. And look at those railways. Look at those places where racetracks were set up, places like Limerick Junction. You would not set up a, a racetrack in Limerick Junction unless, uh, unless if, if for, but for the fact that it was at the join of, of, of the railways. And the story of horse racing in general in the 19th century is the story of the spread of the power of the turf club. Yes, it was established by 1800, but it was only slowly, surely, decade after decade that it began to establish its writ all across the, the horse racing in the country beyond the Curragh. And there were still races such as the Dingle races, which just went, oh, we're doing it the way we've always done it. We don't need you. But in other places, it was a brilliant way of organizing places where there were disputes over race money. Horse racing already in the 1800s was massive business. There were a lot of people employed in it and increasing numbers of people employed decade after decade. And the Irish way of organizing horse racing essentially imitated the English way. So the English Derby was the big day out uh, for Londoners. In, in by the by the by eighteen hundred. So what happens in Ireland? They establish the O'Darby Stakes in eighteen seventeen as the Irish version of it. And then there was a thousand guineas and two thousand guineas in England. Or the Irish had the fifteen hundred guineas. There was the Irish Oaks were established, and so on. So it, it, this, by the way, should not be seen that horse racing was the sport of the elite. Yes, there was elite involvement. The very um, the people who owned the majority of the horses, the people who organised horse racing, were the elite of Irish society. But it was an enormous day out for people all across the countryside. It became a huge popular festival to go to the races. You could have 10, 20, 30,000 people going to horse race meetings with all that that implied around drinking and leisure and, mm. and a, a day out. Mm. What about boxing? Is that wildly popular in Ireland? Boxing. Boxing is boxing is probably the most interesting sport in the in the eighteenth and nineteenth century, and the construction of the modern boxing world. It you can argue that it began in London in the seventeen twenties when a man called James Fig set up called James Fig's Emporium. Right at that joint, people will know it if they've been to London. That joint between Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street, right on that corner there, he set up a club where. He, he used to stage boxing matches indoors. Boxing had previously always largely taken place in the back rooms of pubs or out in wide open areas where people fought against each other. So 1720s, James Figg set up Figg's Emporium and he charged people in to see men boxing each other. And he wrote a kind of a set of rules, which included 
by the way, people wrestling each other and cudgel playing in the middle, which basically means beating each other with sticks in the middle of the boxing match. It was taken on another step further, 1740s, uh, by a man called Jack Broughton, who published Broughton's Rules for Boxing, and he set up Broughton's Emporium in London and came to Dublin and did the same thing, by the way. But in this Broughton's in, in, in Emporium, he wrote Broughton's Rules. It was said he wrote the rules after he had killed the man, although that uh, that's a disputed um, that's a disputed point. And those rules were basically a round ended when one person hit the ground. Right. The round recommenced when that person came back to the mark. You walked up to the mark where you stood a, a yard away from from the person. If you were unable to come back to the mark. The yard, a yard away from your opponent, you were deemed to have lost the fight. Fight regularly lasted 32, 33, longer. And they extended. There were, there were also wrestling in these fights. The one thing you could not do, though, was hit somebody when you were down. And you couldn't, and you had to be careful with low blows. Okay. So if, if we're trying to give an overall picture of Ireland then, um, most popular sport across this period? Um, Cockfighting was hugely popular. I think boxing because of Dan Donnelly. We should actually really talk about Dan Donnelly as a sure. central figure in, 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 in the Irish sporting world. So Dan Donnelly, there's a brilliant thing about boxing where it's so difficult to separate facts from fiction in the lives of people, even now, because the amount of spin and hype. It was, Dan Donnelly was born in Dublin in 1788. And um, he, he, he grew to be big for his era he was six foot tall and 14 stone which does not make him big in our modern world but did in in uh, when he was of his time and it was said that he was a gregarious young man and um he once say was walking down along the keys in the liffey and saw a woman drowning jumped in and saved her um and performed the doctor by the way who had attended his birth said that he would perform heroic deeds for ireland and so on so you can see the way that you can see the image that's been constructed here and it was said he took to boxing only when he was in a pub with his father and he was one of 17 children he was in uh, according to the myth and um, he was in a pub with his father and his father was insulted and uh, dan swung a box and dropped had insulted his father and people were just astonished I mean who would have thought that a, a, a fighter would punch in a pub but in, down he goes the fighter drops the other guy drops and Donnelly's fame spreads across Dublin to the point where he's invited to fight the then champion now name unknown of Dublin and Donnelly made short, short work of him at which point Donnelly did not want to fight anymore according to legend because he was just a fun-loving guy who loved pints and or drinking and didn't really want to go, but was prevailed upon for the honour of Ireland to fight a man called Tom Hall in the Curra in County Kildare in 1814. 30,000 people turned up to the Curra in Kildare according to newspaper reports. Dan had to be kept away from drink in the weeks before the fight, so he was brought to a house in Kilcullen, which was owned by a local grandee called Captain Kelly. Now, Captain Kelly essentially became Donnelly's sponsor. Gambled huge amounts of money on the fight, but also fought, put up the stake that Donnelly fought against Tom Hall. In the fight, in what was subsequently named Donnelly's Hollow, it was named after him, so great was his victory. Donnelly beat the Englishman Tom Hall and acquired immediate and kind of fame in the country. The following year, he repeated uh, this act when he beat John, another Englishman, in, in the Curra in 1815. So happy were his people after that that it was said that 
Donnelly's coach was pulled back to Dublin by his supporters. They detached the horses and they pulled him back there. And Donnelly celebrated by going on the drink for um, for a considerable period of time. He was prevailed upon to settle down. He became a pub owner on Capel Street and then on Egg Street, just beside where Mulligan's uh, pub is is now, until he appears to have been a fairly outstanding customer for himself. So he ended up penniless, at which point he was married and had kids, but then decided to go to England, where the boxing scene in England was considered to be the great boxing scene in the world. And this boxing scene is captured by the great Irish boxing journalist, Pierce Egan, who wrote a book called Boxiana. Uh, it's people can find it. It's free on the internet now. Boxiana is published in several volumes, but in the 1820s and 1830s, um, and it recalls the story of this time fantastically and portraits of the leading people. So he went to London in 1890. Now he was a bit of a shell of a man. He all, he may already have had venereal disease at this point, but he certainly had. He certainly got it by the time he was finished in London. He fought exhibitions and kind of poor. English boxers such as Jack Carter, um, Bre- uh, Ben Burns, and Tom Oliver. Mm. But he actually beat Tom Oliver on Crawley Downs after 32 rounds of boxing um, in 1819. But he would not. He wasn't. He was no fool. He would not fight Tom Cribb, who was this ferocious English English champion from the period. Um, and then he was. His wife went to London and brought him home. Um, but he was met. He arrived into Dunleary or Kingstown as it was then and was galloped on a white horse through the city and people came out and died. Now, it doesn't end well. He died the following year, 1820, presumably from, from illnesses. But I think there are a couple of things that matter about Donnelly's story. He had an afterlife. He was buried in Kilmainham uh, in a cemetery there. But body snatchers took his body. Now, Donnelly, uh, the joke would have it that Donnelly was able to tie his laces uh, without stooping so long were his arms. Um, so his arm was severed from his body and for many years that arm uh, was um, exhibited in the hideout pub in, in Kildare um, and it subsequently has been bought and is part of a boxing exhibition which travels around the place was actually back in Ireland relatively, uh, relatively recently. On top of that, Donnelly's Hollow, still known as Donnelly's Hollow in the Curra, has an obelisk which was erected to his honour in 1888 and the footprints, it was said that if you look carefully, you can see the slope of the ground and where the pieces are. It was said that when Donnelly walked from the ring after, after beating George Cooper in 1815, that people cut out his footsteps all the better to keep the ground he had worked upon and to bring them home with him. And you can still see this imagined sculpting of the ground based around Donnelly's hollow from, from down there. And the story of Donnelly is interesting, though. The story of Donnelly is interesting for another reason. It is, it is interesting because part of the attraction was it was set up as Donnelly the Irishman fighting the Englishman in 1850. And the same was done in London. It was a major thing to attract people to fights. So you would set black boxers fighting against Romany boxers, fighting against Jewish boxers, fighting against English ones or Irish ones and American ones. And Donnelly was just one of several Irish boxers who went over. Peter Corcoran for example, uh, went over and Michael Ryan, Michael Ryan said Michael Ryan would fight anybody who insulted Ireland. That was what Pierce Egan wrote about him. But Peter Corcoran cost, the gambling on these, this, these fights were huge. 
And remarkably, as in horse racing, people tended to vote on nationalistic lines or, or gamble on nationalistic lines. So a huge amount of Irish people, then part of the growing emigrant communities of England in, in 1815, 1820, gambled that Peter Corcoran would beat the champion of England and he duly, he duly lost. And huge numbers of Irish people lost all their money based on this kind of nationalistic bet. So cockfighting, Dan Donnelly and boxing, from our previous conversations, I know cricket's huge at this stage as well, or certainly for a portion of the century. Yeah. Um, if you look at cricket, there's a man called Arthur Samuels who stood up in Kingstown, Dunleary, as part of the Kingstown Literary and Debating Society. And he gave a lecture in 1888. He's cricket in Ireland since the 1840s. And he talked about the history of cricket in the country and he began and he was saying he began by saying in every country colonised by British subjects the game is played and in every climb where Her Majesty's troops unfurl the British standard and pitch their tents there is also a wicket pitched in other words cricket is part of British culture it's part of the empire culture and anybody who wishes to identify with the empire will identify through cricket and you can see that through the 1700s and the 1800s in, in Ireland. By the middle of the 1800s, by the dawn of the famine, there is, not an, there is not a significant British military establishment in the country that does, not have, that does not have a cricket pitch laid out. There's a cricket pitch laid out in what is now Aris and Uthoran and then was the Vice Regal Lodge. And there was a cricket club played out of there called the Vice Regal Lodge. There are major country estates around Ireland that had cricket pitches laid out on them. For example, later Stanley Cochran's uh, place in Woodbrook. He built his own private railway station so that people could come out and watch the, the cricket matches on his grounds. He actually had an indoor cricket school built out at Woodbrook and had a couple of English professionals over to, 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 to run that and to keep the grounds. So on one level, this is exactly right. This is the elite of, of Irish society and British society in Ireland playing cricket, Lord Abercorn playing with the Phoenix Cricket Club and so on. Mm. This is the officers and it's the gentlemen and it's the elite. But by the middle of the 19th century, it is much, much more than that. When you get to the years after the famine, what you see are people from all manner of strands of Irish life playing cricket. Cricket was in every single county in Ireland. There were cricket teams established um, to do with works magazines, in schools, in local areas, in country villages. It became a huge game which was all over the newspapers and had more players than any other sport in Ireland by the 1870s. So I suppose the question is, how did that happen? How is it spread? How did people find out about the game? Well, it happened in all of those ways that I've said about literacy and newspapers, but it also happened because the first big field games clubs that were established in Ireland in the 1830s and the 1840s were to do with cricket and how cricket was organised. And you can see it in the clubs that were established. County Carlow Club in 1830. Same year, County Wicklow Club. Phoenix Cricket Club in 1834. Trinity Cricket Club in 1835. Kingstown Cricket Club 1848. And so on. The Royal School in Armagh 1854. So these are clubs for the elite of society being established in areas. But then people can see them playing. So they begin to imitate the games that they see being played there. And anyway, the tradition of hitting a ball with a stick in Ireland is new. 
and hurling wasn't the only tradition of hitting a ball with a stick. There were games where people played like, like kind of like forerunners or rounders, part of societies all over the place where people hit with ball with a stick and it became no big deal to adopt these games. And this is what happened all across Ireland. So it is absolutely a sport of the empire, but it also became a sport of the people through the 1860s and the 1870s. Okay. So as we begin to wrap this up, obviously we've touched on the famine in a few different ways. And it's funny, I was just talking to someone the other day, we're talking about living through strange times. And really you go back suddenly to my grandfather or your grandfather. And we're not many generations beyond that when the famine is a very real thing. And in some ways, maybe we haven't addressed it or, or talked about it enough is, is a point I've heard a few people uh, make of late. But the effects of the famine on sport, not something I would have ever given much consideration to uh, before. Does it really kind of halt everything? Is, is there trauma for years? Do things get back to normal maybe far more quickly than we might expect? The point you make about this connection to famine is, is really, it's really important. It is a lifetime thing. My grandfather, who was born in 1900, knew people who had lived through the famine. Yeah. So this is this is this is not something that is buried deep in our uh, past in a way that is untouchable. It is something that continues to shape um, Irish life in terms of the demographics and where people live and how people live and the ongoing importance of land in Ireland is undoubtedly undoubtedly linked. Our psyche is still in a very real way affected by it. Yeah, and and it's it's. We, we, we shouldn't make glib points about that either because it's one of those things that's it's buried deep and it's real and it's, it's, it is the great defining event of modern, modern Irish life is what happened in the famine. Without the famine, you, you, with the famine, you've got huge emigration to America and what happened in America was fundamental to Irish emigrant communities funding the Irish national, nationalist cause and so on. So it, it, it operates on so many yeah. different levels. Um, and the memory of the famine is very real um, in, in both in the physical sense and how it's structured society and in, 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 in the psyche, in the sense of psyche. But in terms of sport, there were still horse racing in the famine. There were still cockfighting in the famine. There were even hurling matches still played during the famine. But again, it depended on where you were. I mean, the famine did not hit every place evenly, and it did not hit. It did. It did not um, utterly obliterate all facets of life in every different in different area. And there were some years. Eighteen forty-seven, of course, was a worse year than than other years within the famine. But it, it, again, it's really important when you think about it. A society is neither one thing nor the other at any given time. Things are changing all the time. And change that was taking place before the famine was accelerated during the famine. And new things, things that may have happened otherwise, fell away. And this is, this is something that's absolutely normal. Fascinating stuff. So that's week three. Where are we going in week four? Uh, I think, I think we, we really have to go across the water to England and look at the birth of rugby and of, of soccer and spend just a small bit of time looking at what happened there and what was happening in America with baseball and look at how those two things and in particular soccer and rugby, then their arrival into Ireland, how those things coupled with what was already happening with cricket and what also happened with athletics utterly transformed the understanding of, of the organization of sport in Ireland. So well, like the whole thing is to look at, look at, the, the birth of those two sports, the invention, essentially, 
of association football or, or soccer and how that in turn led to a formalization in structures for rugby. And then it will move from that into looking at how those sports spread into Ireland. And then after that, how that spread led to a reaction in part, which led to the, that world being turned on its head by the establishment of, of the Gaelic um, Athletic Association. So what you're looking at here as well, so that's in a pure organisational sense. But the other thing we're looking at here is the final transformation of the second part of the Industrial Revolution, which brought a huge amount of people desk jobs. So it's not just working in factories, it's desk jobs and it's the spread of empire and the desk jobs around that and what impact that had on the sporting world. So it's those two things with the education world pushing it in, how that transformed and created in the second half of the 19th century, the modern way of playing and organising sport. Okay, look forward to it. Paul Rice, Professor at UCD School of History. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, William.